Albert Einstein, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, John F. Kennedy, Tony Robbins, Michael Phelps, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. What else do they have in common? Well, they all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that, do you? You know what you hear even less about? The successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm an attorney, not a doctor, a lifelong student, not a coach. I'm also the creator of Cortography, a patent pending system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your superpowers, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest superpowers. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode 59 of ADHD for Smartass Women. In this episode, I am so delighted to introduce you to Taylor Levy. (laughs) Before we started, I asked Taylor, okay, how do you pronounce your name, (laughs) your last name? And she told me, Levy, like Levy me alone. And I wrote it down and I still forgot it. Well, ADHD brain, right? Anyway, Taylor Levy is an immigration attorney in El Paso, Texas. She was the legal coordinator at Annunciation House, El Paso's largest migrant shelter. During the summer and fall of 2018, Taylor worked with dozens of pro bono attorneys who traveled to El Paso from across the United States to provide free legal representation to immigrant parents separated from their minor children because of the zero tolerance policy enacted by the Trump administration. Attorneys volunteering with Annunciation House provided legal consultations and pro bono reunification to more than 400 separated families. Currently, Taylor focuses her work on asylum-seeking families who have been returned to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico program. She also mentors attorneys from around the country on these cases and does advocacy, media, and policy work centered on protecting vulnerable asylum seekers arriving at our border. Welcome, Taylor, and thank you so much for what you do. Good morning, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me on. I am just absolutely delighted. So Taylor just sent over a ProPublica article about Honduran refugees, Mirza and David and their kids. And I have to tell you, I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's just all so heartbreaking. The question that I had when I read that article, so I'm just going to dive right in if that's okay, is when we talk about emotional dysregulation and ADHD, and I, and I do want to ask you, you are one of us, right? You have been diagnosed with ADHD? Yes, I've been diagnosed with ADHD several times. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to get all into that. When I'm reading, you know, as I'm reading this article, and we're both attorneys, I really wanted to go into criminal law, criminal law defense, just because, you know, the whole social political justice and, you know, what the what the makeup is of our prisons and, and all of that. And, you know, this was 20 some odd years ago, so we didn't even have the information then that we have today. But I knew, I went to law school, and I knew that I couldn't 
handle it emotionally because of my emotional dysregulation. So my emotional dysregulation is not the kind that, you know, I have a bunch of negative self-talk and I'm turning in against myself. I, I don't have any of that. My emotional dysregulation is cruelty, like human cruelty, and especially when it involves children, animals, anything like that. For example, when I was a little kid, I still remember my parents had on this Disney, you know, those Disney used to have these 7 p.m. Sunday movies. So they were family movies. And there was a silly movie and this girl lost her cat. Her cat died. And I was literally devastated for days. And I remember my parents would look at me and it's like, what? And I mean, I'm still like that. I can't see any movies that win Oscars, like any of that sort of thing. So that's how my emotional dysregulation shows up. And so I read the article that you sent me that was about you and, you know, Mirza and David, you know, immigrants, basically, refugees. Um, and my first thought is, how do you do that kind of work? Doesn't it just tear you apart? Yeah, I think I get that question a lot. I think it's probably one of the biggest questions I get from from journalists and from people who ask me about my work. And I think for me, the truth of the matter is, is it does completely tear me apart, but that's what motivates me. Lots of times people will be like, how can you still do this? Isn't it way too sad? And the truth of the matter is, yes, it's, it's horrifying. It's ridiculously sad. I cry. Um, I cry in court sometimes, which is very embarrassing. But it is what motivates me. And I feel this like extreme need to do the work and to continue to pursue justice. That is such a brilliant answer. I, I got goosebumps listening to it because the thing is that that is the thing that you are so passionate about, that you have so much interest in, that will always increase your dopamine. And so your answer makes total sense to me. Yeah. I guess one more thing if I could add, I mean, I read this article kind of recently, a couple academic articles, which I had never known before about ADHD, but I, I like to research ADHD on the side, but there's a lot of articles coming out since, you know, mid 2000s about people with ADHD having a, like an increased justice sensitivity and a higher yes. sense of fairness and justice. And I think that's kind of a really big factor for myself. Absolutely. I hear that all the time. And I mean, I look at my son is all about social and political justice. I, I think my daughter's on the ADHD spectrum as well. And she's all about social and political justice. And I am too. So I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that that injustice is what just fires us up. And so I often think, well, Tracy, you were a chicken. You should have gone for it because I know that that would have been one area in the law that really did keep me engaged. And, and I think it's also, you know, the going to court stuff too, right? Keeping that adrenaline up. Oh, definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Okay. So we're going to go back to the career stuff because I have all kinds of questions about what it is that you do and how it relates to your ADHD, but I want to talk about some basic ADHD things. So can you tell us when were you diagnosed? So I was not formally diagnosed till I was an adult. A lot of teachers brought this up to my parents when I was a child, but my parents didn't believe in ADHD and decided not to pursue it. So from the time you were in grade school, there were teachers going to your parents saying you should go get her diagnosed? Yeah, I don't remember super well because it would be more like parent-teacher conferences. Mm -hmm. But yes, I definitely think it both in grade school and in middle school. But I was smart also, so it was kind of like I could skate by. Right. It couldn't possibly be ADHD. Look how bright she is. 
Exactly. <laughs> so what were your symptoms? What were the things that teachers saw that they thought you should go get her diagnosed? Do you remember? I think the biggest one was I was just very bored and fidgety and had a I was just very bored by most of the material and I'd finish very quickly. And then I would not know what to do with myself after I finished worksheets that we were doing in class or whatever and not know how to kind of move forward. And that would frustrate teachers, right? Because they didn't know what to do with me. I'd finish too quickly. I'd be bored. Or if we had to have assemblies, it'd be really, really hard for me to sit still, those types of things. So were you disrupting other kids? (laughs) I don't remember too well, but I think I probably was. Um, I definitely was not the most popular in elementary school, and that was tough for me because I think I was a little weird. So there were some social issues as well where you just didn't, like you would just blurt out whatever you thought. Yes, definitely a big blurter outer and really obsessed with like fairness and why isn't everyone being nice to everyone? And, you know, it's my turn. It's not your turn. Like no cutting, really like no cutting in line, like really obsessed with all of those things. (laughs) rules. Well, and, and it shows that that fairness, that justice, that sense of what's right was in you from the time you were a little kid, you were born with it. Yeah, I really think I was. I remember that in kindergarten, I got incredibly sad around Easter because I realized that the Easter buddy went around the whole world and gave everyone an Easter basket, but no one ever did anything for him. And so in my kindergarten class, I asked my teacher if I could make an Easter basket for the Easter bunny, and she helped me. (laughs) Oh, my God. That is the cutest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) So do you mind telling us then how old were you when you were ultimately diagnosed? Um, I was, it's when I decided to go and get my master's degree. So I did undergrad without getting a formal diagnosis. I was kind of afraid of going to a doctor because I thought they would just think I was drug seeking. That was kind of the mindset um, in my university of most of my friends. I was just nervous about it. But once I became more of an adult and I went to grad school at 25, I think, 25, 26 is when I decided to go to a psychiatrist and get a formal diagnosis, which was really helpful. And what made you seek the diagnosis? I mean, you'd gone 25 years and obviously, you know, certainly academically, you were able to get through. I think by that time, I had very strongly identified with a self-diagnosis of ADHD and had realized how many workarounds I had and how important it was to me to kind of be honest and forthright about my diagnosis. And so I wanted it to be formal. Um, It was pretty easy to get diagnosed in the long run, much easier than I expected. And I also did start taking meds to kind of help me with like long writing assignments in particular. So something must have happened that you thought, you know what, I should do this. So did symptoms get worse or was it your responsibilities that got worse? And so the symptoms you already had seemed to, you know, really rear their lovely heads. Um, I don't think it was anything. Honestly, I really love my ADHD in a lot of ways as a blessing and really an integral part of who I am. And so it was more because I knew I was going to grad school. As soon as I started grad school, I went to try and seek out the diagnosis because my biggest struggle is long writing assignments. And that's a lot of grad school, right? I do not like writing and it's hard for me to sit down and write. I'd much rather talk or read. So that's why I wanted to get the diagnosis so I could get you know, the help I needed in school, but also so I could get medication to help me with those symptoms. I struggle with long writing too. And I I make jokes all the time that I am a fantastic editor. (laughs) Like when the writing piece is actually done, I really enjoy it. Like I'm so glad I did it. 
but it's the beginning part of outlining it all. And then it's just boring, right? You know what's in there, you know what you want to say, but it's just so hard to organize it all. That is exactly how I would describe it. It's like, I know what I want to say. I like when I have a written piece, I get good feedback on my writing, but I just hate the process. Like, and I, I realized slowly that I hate the process more than everyone else hates the process. I thought everyone hated writing. And then I was like, oh no, I really hate writing. <laughs> well, and there are people that love it. I mean, that's all they do. <laughs> exactly. That's what I realized in law school, that there's a lot of people who would never want to talk to a client if possible, but they would love to sit in front of their computer and write great legal arguments and make briefs. I call those the typey typey lawyers. And I try and find them to help me a lot so I can, they'll, they'll type things for me and write legal briefs for me, you know, up in Michigan or Minnesota or wherever, and then I'll spend a lot more time with the clients here on the border. So now that you're formally diagnosed and you have the benefit of hindsight, and it sounds like you're one of those lifelong learners, which a lot of us are, are there symptoms that you always wondered about, but now you recognize them as, oh yeah, that's my ADHD. Uh, there, I mean, there's some more obvious things. Like I definitely interrupt people. I have trouble with turn taking in conversations. I apologize a lot to people. I think that the diagnosis has helped me to be really honest and open with my friends and my colleagues, um, so that they know that I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to ignore them in meetings. One of my biggest you know, kind of tricks or workarounds is is doodling in meetings or drawing and same for in my classrooms. So what I started doing was telling my bosses and my colleagues and my professors in law school, just so you know, in, in meetings or in class, I'm going to look like I'm not paying attention because I'm drawing, but that actually means that I'm focused on being able to listen to what you're saying. If I am sitting there looking like this model student, my brain is a million miles away. Huh. And so when you told your professors that, what would they say? What was their response? I think in law school, it was funny because I think the law professors were in particular very conscious of not wanting to like do anything bad or violate the ADA. So I think they were kind of like, <laughs> yes, yes, of course, like whatever, you know, because um, it would always be the first day of school. And I just want to, you know, first day of class, every professor, I'd let them know. But I heard later from some of my friends that at the beginning of law school, like our cohort of students, later when they became my friends, they told me that a lot of people had been making fun of me as who's that weird girl who just draws in class. And <laughs> then it took them a while to like realize that, you know, I would look like I was paying no attention drawing these super elaborate drawings. I actually got a tablet so it wouldn't make any noise, you know, because like markers make noise and I didn't want to disrupt anyone. Then all of a sudden the professor would ask a question and my hand would shoot up and I'd have, you know, the perfect answer. And then they were like, oh, okay, she is paying attention. So what would you do about notes? Um, I, I don't take notes. It, if I try and take notes, then I can't listen. I like my I have, I think auditory processing is really difficult for me if I'm trying to write the notes at the same time. I obsess over trying to make my notes perfect. And so I just do a lot better. I remember. I remember what I was drawing when I learned certain facts. You know, what I, I forgot to mention is that, and I'd like to let, you know, make sure that um, our listeners know this. You tell me if I get this wrong, but my understanding is you put yourself through law school while you were working full time as a single mother of a child. Is that true? Yes, I did. I went to online part-time law school while working full time and being a single mom. Yep. 
What is online part-time law school? Like, I didn't even know that was an option. I know it's a brand new option. I started in 2015 and I was part of the first ever cohort in the entire country that had been approved for a pilot program with the American Bar Association. And it was at Mitchell Hamlin Law School because El Paso doesn't have a law school. Our closest school is four, four hours away. And so this was really the only option for me to be able to go to law school without having to move. I am blown away. So you're telling me I just assumed you had 20 years of experience. So you're doing what you do now, having just graduated, was it in 2015 or starting in 2015? No, I graduated in 2018 and I've only been barred since May of 2019. So I've only been a lawyer for nine months. Oh, that is so ADHD. Oh my God. I love that. That is incredible. So you literally just threw yourself into all of this, including court. Yeah, so I was working, it's a little confusing, but because immigration law is federal law, there's this weird, archaic thing called being an accredited representative, which is an alternate law license. So I'd actually been practicing, I practiced the whole time I was in law school. It's kind of like being a nurse practitioner versus a doctor. So I actually was allowed to go to court because it's federal law. So I've been practicing about six years, but I've only been an attorney for nine months. So you started doing this work and that's when you decided that I want to go to law school? Yeah, mainly so I wouldn't have to explain that thing I just explained right now because (laughs) people take you way more seriously when you're an attorney as opposed to an accredited representative because we're really rare. Yeah, I've never heard of it. And, you know, I went to law school, so you'd think I would. Most people haven't heard of it. Sometimes judges wouldn't have heard of it, to be honest. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so tell me. When you were young, your parents kind of, you know, like, no, nah, we don't believe in ADHD. Does your family know now that you've been diagnosed with ADHD? Yeah, they do. And do they still not believe in it? No, I think they're much more accepting of it now. I think they definitely understand. They're, they see it in a different way. You know, I always had like these 50 pack of markers that I would take to class and um, use to take my notes when I was in high school. Um, I'd bring silly putty to all my classes to play with, to be able to focus. And I think that they see that I still use a lot of those tactics. And I think they see that I'm very successful, but that it's true and it's real. And it's not something that I was making up. I find it so interesting that at that young age, you already knew, okay, these workarounds, they work for me. Sadly, I think a lot of, you know, kids with ADHD, you know, they're told this is how you do it. And they never think that, oh, maybe there's a workaround that they don't know about that would work for me that I should try. Like they don't make that connection. Yeah. And I I think luckily, I think nowadays things are a lot better. I think these concepts of like fidget toys are much more accepted than they used to be. I I definitely would get in trouble with some teachers so that I'd have like secret silly putty in middle school, I remember, and even high school. But most of my teachers, once they got to know me after a couple of days and they saw that I was serious about the materials and that I was smart, they kind of let me get away with stuff on the side. And they knew, you know, it just wasn't worth fighting with me about necessarily most of the time. Absolutely. Although (laughs) I have to say that, you know, these damn impeachment hearings that are going on and the media is consistently making comments like, oh, well, yeah, they're there with their fidget spinners there. And they're like making a joke about it, right? That they're there with their fidget spinners. And every single time I'm yelling at the television saying, well, that actually helps them focus. It doesn't mean that they're screwing around. Well, they may be, you know, but. Exactly. It's so frustrating. I think that I saw they were making fun of someone for drinking too much water, you know, during the hearings or something. And it's like, 
I know. Is why, you know, it's, it's not the content at all. So Taylor, what has changed since you've been diagnosed? You, you did mention that you take medication. Do you take medication only when you have to do like long form writing or do you take it all the time? Yeah, I chose not to take medication daily, which is a bit of a, you know, less average choice. I would say, you know, I work closely with my medical providers to make that choice. Um, I think, like I said, I think a lot of my ADHD really helps me in terms of the work that I do. And so when I'm on medication, it helps me to focus on specific tasks such as writing um, and also when I go to court, because despite the you know advancements we's, we've made in life um, in the courtroom in front of a judge, if I have a long trial, sometimes they'll go you know all day or half days. I can't obviously be drawing in that situation. I can't be playing with toys in that situation <laughs> or prejudice my client. So that's when I take medication. Sorry, I asked two questions there. So what has changed since you were diagnosed? So can you give us an example of what you would have been like in court before you were diagnosed and on medication versus now? Like what has changed? I think when I'm in a situation where I have to sit and be very professional and, you know, not be fidgeting and look like, quote unquote, a real adult, um, when I have to do that not on medication, it feels like physically painful to me. Um, it feels almost like my body is is like humming um, because I want to be moving so badly um, or I'm just so bored by the situation. I have to kind of dig my hands into into my skin or just like clasp my hands really, really tightly to make sure that I'm looking professional. And when I'm on meds, I don't have that struggle. So it's so much easier for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So Taylor, you have done some amazing things with your life that I think a lot of people wouldn't expect from someone with ADHD because they're misinformed. Can you tell us about some of them? Meaning that I guess what what I'm asking is, can you expand a little bit more on the career that you've chosen and what are the ADHD traits that you feel um, make you so successful there? Yeah. Um, so obviously, I mean, I'm an immigration attorney, but I've been working with asylum seekers on the border in El Paso for about 10 and a half years. I think that a lot of things about the way my brain works makes me more able to connect with my clients and connect with the people I work with because of that justice sensitivity, of course, but also because I feel like I'm very empathetic in a way that sometimes other people are not. And I can connect very closely with my clients because I do feel you know, their emotions so closely. And that makes me a better advocate for, for their cases, makes it easier for me to see kind of the big picture, what are the next steps, looking several steps down the line. And it's, it's also, it keeps me from being bored as well. I mean, it's very high adrenaline, stressful, intense work. And that keeps me from being bored and keeps me engaged. So what you basically did is you took your strengths and put them in the right environment. Exactly. Do you speak Spanish? I do. I do speak Spanish. And I, I'm not perfect. I definitely make mistakes, but I would characterize it as, as fluent. But I didn't grow up speaking it. I, I learned it when I was 18 is when I started learning. And I think that I think I'm really good at foreign languages also because of my ADD because I get kind of bored in a lot of situations. And if I am trying to speak in a foreign language that's not natural to me, it makes me much more engaged and focused um, as opposed to, you know, 
English. I'm like, yeah, 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 please talk faster. Oh my God. That is so interesting. And it makes complete sense because if you aren't completely fluent in it, if it's not your native language, you do have to pay more attention so that you don't miss the words. Exactly. (laughs) And the meanings behind the words. That is, I had never thought about that. You know, my son loves foreign languages as well. I mean, he's constantly learning, you know, he's interested in Japanese and then he'll learn Spanish. and, And I always wondered about that, but that makes complete sense. So are you hyperactive? I'm very hyperactive, yes. Okay. Which, you know, they say hyperactive. I say, uh, no, that means that we're energetic, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We get so much more done. And what about impulsive? Do you consider yourself impulsive? Um, I, I'm impulsive. I'm impulsive in terms of speaking. I struggle a lot with tact. It's something I work on very intensely and very consciously to be more tactful um, as to not accidentally offend people. And I, I think I think I struggle with that. I think that's one of my downfalls is not always um, being able to... I hurt people's feelings inadvertently because I am impulsive about the way I speak or I'm very intense. I get that feedback all the time that like, whoa, you're very intense. But in terms of impulsive decision-making, I'm actually the exact opposite. I tend to take a very, very long time to make decisions when it comes to my personal life and have these massive pros and cons lists and get really worried about, you know, what if I make the wrong decision? And I'm I'm a slow decision-maker in terms of my personal life and not very impulsive. That is interesting. So when I think of impulsivity, you know, granted, we've got, you know, all these negative, you know, what they tell us that, oh, ADHD, you're impulsive, all these negative things that we're supposed to do. But I always see it as as creativity that, you know, all these ideas come to our mind. Some of them we shoot out of our mouth too fast, but we're also then able to take all those ideas and put them together into novel arguments and, and other ideas and, you know, products and, you know, entrepreneurial ventures. Um, because we see things that other people don't see. Do you consider yourself creative? Absolutely. I consider myself very, very creative. And I think, I mean, there's some things like that article you mentioned at the beginning, the ProPublica article that came out today. Oh, it came out today? Yeah, it came out this morning. (laughs) How exciting. Well, congratulations. What a lovely, oh, it's not a lovely article. It's heartbreaking, but just what you're doing. I just got goosebumps when I read it. Yeah, it was, it's a, it, reading the article actually made me cry. I'm definitely a a crier because (laughs) even though I was the one who lived it, reading the article really did make me just remember how hard that case was and how emotionally difficult that case was. But one of the things that it talks about in the article is it was incredibly hard. I don't know how I pulled it off, but I was able to arrange a somewhat secret surreptitious wedding inside of the immigration courtroom waiting room between the the mother and father who had been together 12 years, but had never legally gotten married. And I was able to do this, I think, because it, you know, at first it was just every angle, every road we went down, it was no, 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 it's not going to be possible. It's not going to be possible because one person was stuck on this side of the border. The other person was stuck in Mexico. Um, Neither could cross the border. We were going to try and do a wedding like at the actual border fence, but there's, there was no lawful way to do that and no safe way to do that. And we went down so many roads and I was able to finally pull it off. And when we got that marriage certificate stamped and filed and sealed, I just, I just held it in my hands and kind of clutched it to my heart and was like, wow, you know, this is something 
I was able to pull off because I'm creative, because I was able to just not take no for an answer. And this is the thing. I have had so many people with ADHD say to me, but I'm not creative because they think creativity only means being artistically creative, right? Exactly. Um, crafty, whatever, versus what I see as creative is exactly what you said. You are not going to take no for an answer. And where there's a will, there's a way, and you are going to find it. Definitely. Because I'm convinced that a linear brain person, when given your set of challenges for that particular case, they would have never thought about what you thought. You know, they wouldn't have figured it out the way you did. It wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I mean, I think it could have happened, but it was definitely a skill set of mine of being able to just mm -hmm. hyper focus and think about it and think about it and think about it and come up with a very creative solution to make it work. I love it. And then to get that article and see it all, because I think that we too, we, you know, we go through it, it's really intense, we're proud of ourselves for two seconds, and then we kind of forget, right? But then to see that article all written, and all of the things you did, that must feel really good. Like, you must be proud of yourself. Yeah, I was. I was proud of myself this morning, reading it. And like, that's why I said it also, it made me cry, because it it's hard to remember the successes sometimes in the day-to-day -day kind of slog because things are really difficult and really painful right now. And so it felt good to, to see it all in black and white. Absolutely. I have a list for myself, everything good that has ever happened. And when I start to do the spiral thing, I pull it out because of exactly what you said, we forget. And so we'll glob, and it takes what, five good things to combat one bad thing. And we tend to glob onto the bad things at times. So all of those things, you know, around me, like physical things I have to see is what helps me not do that spiral thing. Okay. So distractibility. So do you consider yourself distractible? Cause that's another thing that's, you know, supposedly in the DSM about those of us with ADHD. Extremely distractible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it's good in some ways because I think of good, you know, Lots of times I'm distracted in ways that educate me or in ways that I came up with a really good idea, but it's hard because I'll be working on, you know, Maria's case. And then all of a sudden I'll start thinking about, oh, wait, 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 I could do this for Juan. And, but I need to be working on Maria's case. So I use lots and lots of handwritten to-do lists and post-it notes. And for whatever reason, I'm, I'm a big tech person, but when it comes to to-do lists, I can't, it's, it doesn't like. I need the tactile sensation of writing things down on, on written lists. So that way I can kind of come back and, um, you know, come back from the distraction and kind of rein it in as needed. Yeah. And again, distractible, supposed to be such a bad thing. And I just see it as curiosity, you know, that there's always something. I think distractibility and impulsivity, they're kind of almost hand in hand. We have all these ideas but those ideas are what make us so creative and so able to take something that your, your linear brain person would never see and make something really good out of it. Exactly. And we're, we're just so lucky to live in the age of the internet and this ability to, you know, when I get curious about, I don't know, something super random that pops into my head while I'm doing something else. And I'm like, oh, well, I wonder what's like, you know, what's the history of that word or why are they doing this? I can just Google it real quick and then I can get calmed down because, and I can focus back to the task at hand as opposed to, I don't know, back in the day, you'd have to what, go to a library or just obsess over it or who knows. 
And sometimes people think that's annoying when you're the person who Googles everything, but it makes me much smarter and much more well-informed. And um, who knows when that knowledge will be able to come back to help someone in the future. I love that response because a lot of times we hear that, oh my gosh, Google and the ADHD brain, you know, what a rabbit hole. (laughs) But um, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we can get that instantaneous dopamine hit if there's something we're we're interested in and we want to know the answer to. I love that. Yeah, and it's not it's not a negative, it's a positive, you know, it's not drugs, it's not alcohol, it's just like, okay, I want to know the answer to this. Here's the answer and here's the debate about the answer and here's various people talking about it, but I mean, that's fascinating. That's like a that's a good skill. It makes you a more well-informed and educated person. Totally agree. So I think you basically answered this question, but I'm going to ask it a little bit differently. Do you believe that you are successful because of your ADHD? I 100% believe I'm successful because of my ADHD. Mm -hmm. And that's why I choose to talk about it very publicly because um, I think more people should talk about being neurodivergent and and talk about the positives so that we can be like a role model for kids who are are struggling or adults who are never diagnosed who are struggling and, and know that that it's a blessing also. Absolutely. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I think the key is being honest and being honest with yourself and being honest with those around you. Uh, when, when my parents didn't want me diagnosed when I was a kid, you know, they talk about it being a crutch. You know, we don't want you to be labeled like a weirdo. We don't want you to be labeled as disabled. You know, it's a crutch. And I don't think it needs to be a crutch. It needs to be a stepping stool and it needs to be something where you're honest with people because otherwise when I interrupt all the time or when I, you know, whatever, like change stories mid-sentence, you know, and get back to life. <laughs> I mean, people get, people get frustrated because they think that maybe I don't care. And if I'm really upfront with who I am with people from the beginning and it makes them know that I am different perhaps in the way their brain functions, but that I do care about them and I do care about listening to their story. I just need, you know, I just learn in a different way and I process in a different way and I talk in a different way. Makes makes complete sense to me. And and then you're not trying to fit yourself into that box of who you aren't. Exactly. Which I think is where most people with ADHD really run down the wrong road. If you're trying to constantly be what everybody says, you know, you should be like and they want you to be, well, great. Then you're living their life. No wonder you're so miserable. And I've definitely gone down that road. You know, I, I I've been that person before, especially when it comes to kind of all those jokes about adulting, you know, and, and how hard it is to adult. And I, I beat myself up about it before. And I, you know, and it's not like I'm perfect and I'm cured and I never get sad about those things. I still, you know, I, I really struggle with keeping my house clean and, um, I really struggle with meal planning because I get frustrated because I think about the fact that for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to eat three times a day and, Ugh, that's so overwhelming to think about. Um, but but just knowing like, okay, I'm not great at that, but I'm really great at helping a lot of people and I'm really great at succeeding in court and focusing on, you know, there's ways to ask for help in those aspects or, you know, pay someone who is good at that to help me with, with cleaning my house, for example. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were saying that, the thought that popped into my mind was, I have never heard a guy or a man with ADHD 
beat themselves up about the fact that they can't meal plan or they can't keep their house clean, right? They would just hire someone and no one would say or think anything of it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Cause like women are socialized that we should be good at this, you know? Uh, we have to do everything. And I think because we're so justice sensitive, I think many women with ADHD, okay, I'm trying to formulate this argument in my head. I think that many women with ADHD tend to be, you know, more feminist. They tend, they're smart. They want to go out. They want to do something with their life because of this need to, you know, fire that dopamine in their brain and have things that are exciting. But we're also, you know, all that socialization of what girls should be like and what women should be like. And I really think that that's in large part what sends a lot of women down the wrong rabbit hole, you know, just when it comes to life. ADHD women. Well, all women, but especially ADHD women. (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, I think it's of all women, especially ADHD women. I think it's hard. Like I said, it's, it's not perfect. It is hard in professional settings to get the feedback over and over again that I'm so intense or that I'm intimidating when I'm just, I'm like, well, if I was a dude, I really don't know if this is how you would feel about the way I'm presenting. I think you're expecting something different of me because I'm a woman. And if I was in the courtroom speaking the same way as, as a man, I don't think you'd be reacting to me the same way, you know, or in a large meeting. Um, But also having to realize the world is the way it is and that I can try and rein that in if I need to, and then pull it out when I need to as well. Absolutely. So Taylor, what is your number one ADHD workaround? Do you have something that without it, you just would not be able to function as well as you do? Um, my number one ADHD workaround, uh, <laughs> I guess if I had my number one, I am very obsessed with Sharpies in particular, Sharpies and legal pads. <laughs> Why a Sharpie? Um, I. What does that do for your brain? It's so, it's so concrete to be able to make lists and, um, you know, next steps for to do lists, et cetera. In Sharpie, feels so like it's just so black, right? It's not you can't see through. It's not wobbly. It's so black and white that it it sticks in my brain in a way that's very different than any other types of pens. And I would think Sharpies would be the number one thing that if I couldn't have Sharpies anymore, I'd be very upset. That is amazing. So when you're writing on a yellow legal pad, you are always writing with a Sharpie? Always writing with a Sharpie. I am drawing on a yellow legal pad this moment with a Sharpie. And does the Sharpie ink, this is so such an ADHD (laughs) question, but doesn't the Sharpie ink run through to the other side? It does run through to the other side, but I keep another piece of paper behind it, which is fine. And then another thing that's funny is I always say, if I could start with a brand new Sharpie every day, I would be happiest. And then one day I realized I actually could do that because I'm an adult and I can make my own choices. (laughs) Um, So I tend to start every day or every couple of days with a brand new Sharpie because I like them when they're very sharp and new and really black. And then afterward, I just give all my like perfectly fine Sharpies to my colleagues because I don't like them as much anymore. And then they just get a lot of Sharpies. So is it a, is it a fine point Sharpie? Medium? What is it? Fine point, like the normal one, not the skinny one, just like the normal Sharpie. So it's a thick Sharpie. It is a thick Sharpie. 
That is hilarious. And that is one thing that they say about those of us with ADHD all the time. And I have noticed it. We we find a writing implement and it uh, mine's my Muji. What is it? It's a Muji weighted mechanical pencil, balanced oh. mechanical pencil. If I lose this thing, I've got a bunch of them and they're, you know, they're expensive for a silly pencil. I can't write without them. So that is so interesting. You know, on one hand, I'm thinking, well, it's so, like you said, it's so dark, it's so final. And it's almost like that's that just signifies structure, you know? Exactly. This is so interesting. You have a pencil. I've never heard this from anyone else. <laughs> yeah. And, and I have never been a pencil person, but I found this pencil and I just, I do everything in pencil now. That's fascinating because I hate pencils because I'm like, it's not dark <laughs> enough. It's gray. Like, uh. <laughs> well, every brain is different and every ADHD brain is different. But when we find what works, we stick with it. Exactly. So, Taylor, I have one final question because I bet there's a young woman listening to us on this podcast right now. She's just been diagnosed with ADHD. Well, before I finish the question, how old are you, Taylor? I am 33. Wow. Okay. So I don't know why. I thought you'd be, just given everything that you've done, I thought for sure you'd be like in your late 40s. <laughs> I'm blown away. So anyway, we've got this young woman listening to us on this podcast. She's just been diagnosed with ADHD. What advice do you have for her? My biggest advice would be to do the research on the internet and not think that because you're reading like message boards or your wonderful Facebook group or, you know, Attitude Magazine or things that aren't perhaps like scholarly, psychiatric, DSM sources that they don't matter. You know, talk, talk to people either online or in person about the way that a diagnosis of ADHD can be so liberating once you realize, okay, you know, I'm not neurotypical. I'm not the one who's failing because I'm bad or because I'm lazy or anything like that. I'm just different and that there's all these wonderful workarounds and wonderful ways of looking at the world in which, you know, we, we contribute to the world and we make the world a lot better in a lot of ways. And to see it as, for one, you're not going to be able to magically change it if you've just been diagnosed, but to see it as something that can be really positive in your life if, if you look at it that way and if you choose to seek out positive mentors and instead of looking at it as a, as a disability or as some sort of failing. Well, you know, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Coming from another <laughs> smart ass woman. And what I would add to that is that medical professionals know a lot if they're experts in ADHD, but they don't know everything. And ultimately we're all just guinea pigs because just because that medication works perfectly for this person doesn't it mean it works for me, right? And so you just have to try things for yourself. And then you have to be really clear about what's not working and what is working. Just because they're telling you to do something does not mean it's the right thing for you to do. And I say that from experience because I've been down a lot of dark alleys because of what medical professionals told me to do. I totally agree with that. There's so much stigma against this idea of we should only listen to the experts, but you know, we're experts of our own brains. We're experts of our own bodies and we have a right to have a voice in, you know, whatever treatment regime um, we come to. If we even choose to seek out psychiatric help, you know, or psychological help, 
not everyone has to choose to do it that way. You know, I did it a long time without meds and I still, I go against what is theoretically recommended by the FDA in terms of choosing not to take medication every day. And I do it in a healthy and safe way where my practitioners know, you know, I'm not secretly not taking my medication, but it's been very successful for me. And I had to come to that and be strong with people who I was talking to the doctors about, you know, I want to try it this way. Let's see if this works. And as. Well, and I just love your comment that you are successful because of your ADHD. So the fact that you're so good with your clients, the fact that you're so good in court, that is because of your ADHD. So I don't want to medicate that, but this is part of my job that I have to do and I don't do it really well when I'm not medicated. So I'm going to get that to help me in that area. I just, I think that's brilliant strategy. Yeah, exactly. Like I do not like meeting with clients on days that I've taken my medication. I purposely plan it out. Otherwise, if I have to, I have Mm. to, but outside of court days, I don't want to be meeting with clients um, when I've been taking medicine because I don't feel like I can hear them in the same way. I can't, feel them in the same way. I can't like empathize and connect with them and know what are the correct follow-up questions to ask because I'm, I'm just not creative in the same way. And I'm, I'm not, I don't connect. Hmm. Sounds like it mutes your interpersonal intuition. (laughs) That sounds like a very intelligent way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. You are truly such an inspiration. I still can't get over the fact that you're only 33. Um, (laughs) Is there anything that you're working on or that you want to share with us before you go? Um, yeah, I, I work independently. I'm not with a nonprofit now. After about 10 years with nonprofits, I decided to be more flexible by being independent. But I do get supported by various nonprofits. And the biggest one that, that supports me, they let me office with them for free right now, is the Santa Fe Dreamers Project. They're a nonprofit that is doing amazing work with, with asylum-seeking migrants here on the border and in all of New Mexico, but also in El Paso here on the border. Especially they work with a lot of queer Um, LGBT asylum seekers, and they're absolutely lovely. What is the organization called again? It's called the Santa Fe Dreamers Project. Santa Fe Dreamers Project? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And you're going to give me all those links. I'm going to put them in the show notes. Also, I bet you there's someone who just, you know, wants to connect with you. Would that be okay if they did that? Of course. Anyone's welcome to email me and... Yeah. Do you want me to share my email? Would that be helpful? Yeah. Go ahead and share your email. Again, I'll put it in the show notes as well. Perfect. So anyone's welcome to email me. I don't have a website, but my email is taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, levy, L-E-V-Y, law at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you again, Taylor. Thank you so much, Tracy. And thank you for your, for your Facebook group. I've really loved being a part of it and, and hearing so many other tips and tricks and support from all the different women. Wonderful. That was the goal. So anyway, that's what I have for you for this week. As always, you are listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you liked this episode with Taylor, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they can discover their amazing strengths. And your reviews, guess what? They really help in that regard. For me, they're like those little gold stars we used to get on our work when we were kids in school. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message, 
or you can reach out to me at Tracy at TracyOutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smart Ass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. If you liked what you heard, we sure would appreciate a review. And not coincidentally, ADHD for Smart Ass Women, well, that's also the name of our free Facebook group. Go look it up. We're a totally smart ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. We'd love to have you join us. You can also find all my details over at tracyoutsuka.com. Don't forget, I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.